And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. start Monday off with a little grunge angry energy because I woke up this morning and there was this ugly white stuff on the ground on my lawn. It is too early for that. Any first day of snow is too early for snow. Let me be clear about that. Welcome, everyone. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here at World Headquarters at SciFiForMe.com. We had a busy weekend this weekend, this past weekend. We uh, wrapped up our uh, 10 days with walking and rolling costumes with their virtual party. And you can still check that out over here on our YouTube channel, on our Facebook page, on their Facebook page. Uh, we had our reveal of the costume, our final costume reveal last night, the Coffin Stadium costume. Uh, so uh, go check that out. And a real quick, uh, a real quick bit. Let me find it here. You can find their site, uh, walkandrolling.org is uh, where you can see all of that information on how you can help them out, volunteer, donate, and such. And uh, speaking of kids and superheroes, uh, there's this bit of news, a piece of, of, uh, a piece of uh, good news. Uh, the World Boxing Council named Bridger Walker an honorary champion for a day. This is the kid who saved his three-year-old sister from a dog attack. He's got 90 stitches, and he said, if anybody's going to die, it's me, because I'm the older brother. And so the, wor the World Boxing Council has named him a champion, honorary champion. He's six. He's in Wyoming. And that will stand in the record books. So congratulations to him. It's not really genre-related, but he's a superhero. He's a real-life superhero. So we're happy to uh, congratulate him for that. So there's... There's a few things there. The live chat is active. We do have email live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. You can leave a comment if you are watching or listening to this in replay. And uh, don't forget, we do have a discount negotiated over at superherostuff.com, 10% off when you use the promo code sci-fi4me10. You can save a little bit of money there. Um, very, very, very quickly, because this is something that uh, this is something I, I, I came across this weekend. It drew my attention just for a moment. This thing called Transparency Tube. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. This thing is very problematic uh, to, to at least, you know, it's... It's going to be a mess. Uh, I, I became aware of this uh, over the weekend. Clownfish TV was talking about it. Apparently, this is a new site that labels YouTube channels based on the activity of their followers. 
Um, folks, this is uh, this is a, a lawsuit just waiting to happen. I just uh, it's not it's not one of those things that I would uh, uh, prefer. We so far have not been labeled, which is good. Um, and if we do, it's probably going to be something that uh, that causes a problem for someone. So anyway, there is that. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we can avoid that for a while. Now let's uh, let's get to the meat of the matter here. Josh Vote is with us today. You've also got snow on the ground, I understand, out in Colorado. Welcome, sir. Yeah, we got about four inches last night, and the kids are all complaining about it while the dogs are loving it. So. <laughs> I have, uh, we have a miniature pincher, a uh, junior office dog, Penny, uh, is not too thrilled with it. So, uh, I guess, I guess it's a little bit too hard on the toes, uh, with the, with yeah. the cold. So we, we've got a, we've got a cattle dog and then a miniature woolly mammoth. So they both like colder weather. So. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's get in here a little bit about you. Uh, you are author, uh, Fantasy, science fiction, horror, humor, pulp. Uh, you're a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and uh, the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers, uh, which is a somewhat smaller club because uh, those are the, those are the authors who write the stuff that ties in with video games, movies, television. So, like, say, a, a Star Trek novel or a Stargate novel exactly. or the Doctor you know, Who novels. Doctor yeah, Who. All of that. And yeah. you've been playing in the video game uh, side of tie-ins more than anything else. Is that correct? Actually, more in the role-playing game, the tabletop game okay. uh, side of things. Most of my most of my uh, novelizations are based on on that. So if you've done Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder, uh, it's in that vein of things. Um, I'd like to do certainly more work in video games, but that's that's an area I'm working to break in on as well. Um, but everything has been pretty much tabletop RPGs. Okay, and that and that question that I just asked is uh, uh, indicative of my ignorance uh, a little bit in the gaming side of things. I peaked at the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, so I all of all of the <laughs> things that are going on now, I'm playing catch up because I have, uh, you know, I did the, I did Dungeons and Dragons, I did Car Wars, I did Top Secret, Starfleet Battles, all back in the day, but that day was not yesterday it was it was many many moons ago so uh sci-fi snob the chat says the audio needs to be turned up i have made an adjustment there so we will we will keep an eye on that so if you want to let us know if that gets any better there so josh what are you working on currently uh in in your pipeline because i imagine you've probably got more than one project in the works at any given time yeah. Um, so the the last book that just came out was the the Nexus book, uh, Blood, Guts, and Glory. That's been out for about a month. Um, since then, I've been juggling a few different projects. I actually have, uh, I'm both indie published, traditional published, and I do this work for hire contract work uh, for tie-in. Um, I have a new client for a new tie-in novel um, that's going to be more of an epic fantasy based on uh, their uh, game setting that's been uh, that's been around for a while. They've been revamping that for a bit. I'm not able to produce the details of that quite yet, uh, still under a bit of a uh, restricted content there, but that's one that I'm working on. Um, I have an agent that I'm working with as well on some of my personal projects, and I've been doing a lot of uh, middle grade uh, writing, actually. So I have a middle grade science fiction novel that's been shopped around a bit, um, and then I am working on a new middle grade fantasy novel uh, called The Green Guard. 
which is about what happens when a, uh, a teenage group, a group of teenage gardeners uh, get pitted up against wild, evil nature magic in their neighborhood. So those are a couple of the, of the ones that I'm working on right now. So how, how much of a, of a difference in approach is there? Um, because there are, there are people out there who are strictly YA authors, and there are authors yeah. who play in various different sandboxes. In terms of style, approach, the amount of world building, the depth in the layers in the story, <laughs> do, you, do you cut any corners with the middle grade stuff, with the, with the, the stories that are aimed at younger audiences, or do you just are, are you still putting in as much detail and world building and story as you would for, like, say, uh, an, an RPG tie-in or an original novel that's geared toward adults? Is is there a difference in how you how you do it? <laughs> I I love world building and love building magic and that sort of thing. So I put just as much effort into that, even if it's for a younger audience. Um, sometimes more so because that's the kind of book that I would have wanted to read back when I was that age. Uh, so I'm writing what I would love to read. Um, it's it's sometimes that with RPG tie-ins, you don't have to do as much world building because the game setting's already there. They've done all the world building for you. You just have to figure out how to tie it in and make it a, a, a really good story out of it um, outside of the game mechanics and that sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I invest just as much time in the middle grade and the tie-ins in my own more adult fiction um, because I want to still be producing the best story that I can. Have you run into the the canon police on any of the stuff that you've done as far as tie-in stuff? Because there are... Uh, there are the official representatives of a brand who are the mm -hmm. ones who will review whatever you read, whatever you write, and they say, okay, this, this doesn't fit because X over here happened or whatever, I mean, you know, making right. sure that the continuity matches up and everything. But then you have mm -hmm. the readers, you have the people out there in the general public who come in and depending on how, how well you adhere to the continuity and the canon, you can be praised, you can be roasted. Have you encountered any of that yet with the tie-in stuff? Has it not, been? Not so much that. Um, part of it is because some of the tie-ins that I've done um, over the past few years have been for newer uh, RPG settings. Um, so they're not as, they don't maybe don't necessarily have the hardcore evangel evangelistic, you know, right. uh, uh, teams that are out there researching that kind of stuff. They're still building their fan base and, and they're doing that through the novelization of their game. I have definitely had to work within canon for all of the settings. Um, like for instance, one of the very, the very first time that I did was a Pathfinder novel, um, Forge of Ashes. And there was a lot of upfront research that had to be doing a lot of upfront vetting that had to be done for that, just to make sure that the characters were okay, the settings were okay, the very monsters. And even if I used a particular monster, I could only use certain names for that monster because other names were licensed by Wizards of the Coast versus uh, Paizo, which is the Pathfinder publisher. Um, and even after I turned in the complete full draft, I had to go back and revise the last three whole chapters, which is where like the big battle scene happens because I used a particular monster that they forgot to tell me they didn't have the rights to. Um, so I had to swap it in and do kind of a, you know, a skin swap and change some of the dynamics of the battle to, you know, so we don't get sued kind of thing. Uh, so that, yeah, that's a challenge. Do you generally find that it helps 
to play the game uh, as you're writing or before you're writing so you're familiar with the dynamics of it or does that factor in at all in plotting a story it helps that i'm from i've been a gamer all my life i know how a lot of these systems work i know how you know role playing works i've done both the role playing and the gming side or dming side um i understand the mechanics behind it and how it can translate uh, I, you know, some people who are the literalist GMs who play by the rules and nothing but the rules and others who just wing it for story's sake. Um, you know, it, in the end, you have to strike that fine balance of telling, a, you know, an excellent story, but in a way so that if someone plays the game and wants to do something with a character that you've, you know, that you've done in the book, they should still be able to do that. And there shouldn't be a rule in place that stops them from doing something that happened in your book. Uh, that could be you know, that's a little bit of a trickier thing. So um, I'll do a lot of, you know, backend structure, like for the Pathfinder book, I actually made character sheets. Um, so I understood what level the characters were and what skills, you know, they had available to them. Um, and I've done similar for uh, character building steps for all the settings that I've been in. So that way, you know, they don't pull out some epic or legendary ability that they shouldn't have until they're 10 levels higher kind of thing. Right. Um, the the tie-in world to me is is uh, is is a little bit more fascinating uh, on on some levels because you have the opportunity to play in someone's sandbox, someone else's mm-hmm. sandbox, but at the same time you have the challenge of playing in someone else's sandbox. Have you have you had yes. have you ever had ideas for something and you sit there and you go, oh, this would make a really cool fill in the blank adventure. And then the people who own that brand kind of pat you on the head and say, no, not today. Have you had yeah. those those darlings killed? Absolutely. Um, I went through, uh, each time I've, I've done a book with any RPG setting, it's usually taken close to a dozen idea iterations before we land on one that everyone agrees is the best one. And a lot of those ideas are still perfectly good ideas, but this one might be too grandiose and too world impacting. I can't have an idea that involves, you know, the destruction of a major city, or I can't go and kill a god in that setting or something else that would change the lore so much that it would affect the players. Um, so yeah, that, that, that would be one limit there. Uh, yeah, it, it can be difficult, um, going in there and trying not to muck it up too much, but still feeling like you have freedom. I like structure and outlines to my story. So it does help to kind of have an idea of this is what I can play with. And this is what I can't with up front. That way you're not just, uh, you're not staring at a blank page, wondering where to start. You always have a very definitive setting and, you know, types of characters. And these are the races that you can work with it. And this is how the magic works. So a lot of that work is done up front for you, but yeah, you are, you do have to take into account. You can't just wing it. Another example of that is also outside of the story as an author, I don't have any necessarily any control over the characters of the book after it's published. Right. Um, generally it's a work for hire contract. So they still own the rights. I've just been hired to, as you say, play in their sandbox. With Pathfinder, for instance, I've sold out of the, the print run of that book and they're choosing not to republish it. So that book is will eventually be unavailable except in ebook and audiobooks. Um, I, I don't have any say in that, even though I would love to take those characters and write more stories about them. That's until they give me permission to do that, I can't. You mentioned mucking it up. That gives me a good uh, point of transition here to talk about your own series, The Cleaners. 
uh, where uh, you are basically looking at a number of uh, a number of characters who are space janitors. I guess is the is the best way to do this. the the beginning uh, The beginning of the series. Enter the janitor. Uh, this is part of the 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 cleaner series. Now, how many how many books are in this series? Four, is that right? Uh, there are four so far. Um, I do actually have a plan to end it at book six. Um, right now, I was going to be getting book five out this year. That's been pushed back a little bit just because of all the other projects that have come ahead of it. Uh, but it's an it's an urban fantasy setting. I like to call it my supernatural sanitation setting. Uh, so yes, janitors, maids, plumbers being the secret heroes of the world and dealing their du- uh, dueling corrupt magic and, and sewer monsters and all sorts of corrupt creatures uh, saving us from behind the scenes. Uh, it's been a very fun series to write. Um, Jim Hines has a series that he came out with a few years back uh, that is actually like space janitors, but this one is more you know, modern day fantasy. Um, but it's been a lot of fun to write. That was, that came about, uh, Enter the Janitor came out the same month that Forge of Ashes did. So I kind of have a, had a dual debut novel. Um, the second book uh, came out, uh, The Maids of Wrath. And then the fourth book just came out last year and that's Fellowship of the Squeegee. Um, <laughs> I am, I'm working on book five. Um, and I believe that's a tale of two poor bodies is the title of that one. Um, so, and then book six will wrap up the series. You cut out a little bit. A tale of two what? Tale of two porta potties. Ah, uh, tale of two porta potties. Of course, because naturally it goes that way. Uh, it, right. it 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 puts me in mind of when you mentioned plumbers. It puts me in mind of Ben Ten, uh, where you yes. have this this secret society of of uh, planet protectors that are known as plumbers. It it. it I don't want to say it's a trend, but I've noticed every now and again, uh, it is the unlikely occupations like plumbers, janitors, librarians, who suddenly yeah. find themselves as the heroes of the books. I mean, we've got the the librarians TV series. We have uh, we have plumbers over at Ben Ten. Now you've got your your cleaners here. Uh, is that an easy leap? to take an unexpected, you know, not necessarily a mundane occupation, (laughs) but it's not the one that you would typically associate with superheroics. Right. Where did that idea start? How did, how did you get started on this series of, of supernatural uh, janitors, sanitation sanitation workers? workers? Yeah. Uh, it came to the title came to me first, you know, and I'm, I'm actually I'm a martial artist and so enter the dragon, of course, uh, but enter the janitor just popped into my head one day and it immediately started making sense to me um, in that janitors and maids and plumbers and other sanitation workers, they are essential to society. They are they work at all levels of society. They are in every business, every office, every government uh you know, building there, we, we hire them to come into our homes. They're in our schools. They do, you know, they clean our streets, everything, but we never pay attention to them. Um, we just, and if you see someone pushing a mop around, you just assume they belong there. You don't question them. Uh, you can't ever get into their janitor's closets because those are always locked. So who knows what they actually have in there. Right. Um, and, and so they have access to everything, but they're also invisible. 
So if there was ever any sort of group or demographic that would have the ability to you know, produce this magical defense of society without ever being noticed, it would be them. And that's one of the things that urban fantasy sometimes struggles with in that, in that genre of like, oh, if there were vampires and werewolves and ghosts and goblins and stuff in modern day, why don't we see them? If magic is real in modern day, why don't we notice it? Well, it's, not, it's because they're, they're not wandering around with wands and staves and wearing robes. They're wandering around with squeegees and buckets and mops that just happen to be staves, you know, and magically enchanted. Right. Um, and they're wearing, you know, their company uniform. Well, and we've even seen in the in the Marvel movies when Thor and Loki are right. in their civilian garb, Loki's got a cane with him that is essentially his staff. Uh, so these are an umbrella, just depending on how how you disguise the thing. Right. And I noticed that your your lead character you have a you have a teenager who discovers her magical abilities uh, as. I guess by accident in all of this, and you have these. Are you using the hero's journey structure, or are you referencing back to Campbell on any of this, or because you have the Somewhat. you have the janitor that shows up? Well, I think his name was Ben, and and he's the, mm -hmm. I guess the mentor that starts teaching her how how all of this works, and and introduces her to the to the universe. Are you following the same characters throughout all of the different stories, or is it a different group each time? Yeah, there's definitely some, I do like structure. I do like, you know, I'm a plotter uh, versus a pantser. If you're, if you're a writer or author, you've probably heard those terms before. Um, and I will, you know, set up my books to different types of structures and, and whatnot, uh, still allowing myself for some freedom of storytelling. The books do follow the, some of the main primary characters throughout the series. Um, I try not to, you know, fall into cliche or stereotype of that. And I try to still bring out surprise developments and ways that people evolve that are unique to them. You know, I'm not shoehorning some, you know, child of destiny prophecy kind of uh, stereotype into all this. Um, you know, and for instance, you know, I have a male and female lead in the series, but they're not romantically involved. And that's never something I wanted them to be. Uh, you know, just because that's a common thing in urban fantasy and paranormal romance and sure. that sort of thing. So I try and stay away from that and make it unique. You know, Ben, when you meet him, he's a 70-year-old you know, geriatric who, who can barely walk because he's so, you know, arthritic and all that kind of stuff versus uh, the Danny, the girl who he gets saddled with, and they hate each other. You know, that's, that's kind of the fun of it is their, their relationship is just so different. So more more first season of Moonlighting rather than the last season of Moonlighting. <laughs> yeah. 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 Is is the world building easier for the stuff that you're creating all on your own as opposed to having to fit inside a niche? You've definitely have to you've got to paint inside the lines with the tie in stuff. Whereas with your original stuff, you can kind of go sprawling all over the place. Kind of. Um, there's there's pros and cons to both. With my own worlds, yes, I have absolute freedom. I can make up the rules. I can make up uh, however it wants to go. I can change things, and there's no one to tell me I can't. The, the main issue is I have to be internally consistent. Um, I still have to establish rules. Otherwise, it's just a you know genie in the bottle plot. Um, I have to make sure that they, you know, I have to do a lot more upfront uh, construction of the world in order to then 
let the story play out in it. And I have to constantly be referring back to make sure that I'm being, like I said, consistent with what I already established. Um, with a preset world or a pre-made world on a game, there's a bit more just upfront research so that I understand the world well enough to de develop the plot and the characters within that context. Uh, and then I just you know, have to refer to it. So it's a lot more, usually when I'm writing, I have the game manuals open, you know, either in PDF form or physically, and I'll just keep constantly be flipping back and forth, checking on, okay, what's this monster do? And what's this setting look like? Are there maps? What is this, you know, that sort of thing. So it's a bit, uh, it's a bit different. And does that change with the new editions of the game? Because I know with, with Dungeons <laughs> & Dragons, for example, you've got your, your original edition. I think they're up to like fifth or sixth edition now. And you've got right. new fiend folios, new monster manuals, and that, that sort of thing. And characters, beasts change over time. They either are given new abilities and skills or it's, it, they, they get revised. Do, right. you, do you run into that where maybe you've got an out of out of date suddenly your character your your monster is doing something that it can't do anymore? I haven't run into that yet. Um, none of the none of the work that I've written has been I don't think the systems have been so drastically revised yet right. uh, that it invalidates what's written. Um, even if so, it's up to the publisher then whether they want to you know rehire me to make a revision of the of the novel. but I don't think, most RPG publishers are going to require that of the authors. Right. Um, now, yeah. when you talk about uh, the research, the homework, and looking into all of this stuff, and you start dealing in realms of magic, there are lots of different versions of the supernatural world, the ethereum, and, and you know the different magical realms and how magic works. Are, do you have a preference on what kind of magic shows up in your books? Are you researching to look at particular types of the physics of this particular magic is different from the physics of this particular magic over here? So are you, are you sticking to one particular style of spell casting, I guess, is, is one way to look at it. Or are you pulling from all the different types of folklore and, and supernatural elements as they fit the story? Are you talking about my personal work or in the tie-in work? Uh, well, mostly in your personal work, because the tie-in work, I would imagine, is going to have to follow right. the rules of the game. But in yeah. your stuff like with um, the cleaners and, and that sort of thing, yeah. where you can make it up as you go, are you following a certain <laughs> set of rules for magic? Yeah, I do establish certain rules. And sometimes those rules are, are only for my own reference. They may not even be talked about in the book itself. Um, I try to make it clear. There's a few rules, like uh, probably a lot of people who watch the show are uh, know Brandon Sanderson, who is infamous for his magic rules and systems and things of that sort. Um, I don't go as hard as that. Like he's got whole dictionaries basically defining the magic systems for each of his books and his settings. It's hugely intricate. Um, for me, I don't go that in depth, but I do establish um, things like what is the cost of the magic? You know, do you, is, is, are you going to, if you cast a spell, are you going to wake up with a headache the next day or are you going to lose your soul if you cast a spell? You know, there always has to be a cost. There has to be consequences. Um, I do think of it more as almost a form of uh, supernatural physics where there is, you know, there's conservation of energy. It has to come from somewhere. There are, you know, the, the reaction, uh, the cause has a reaction and 
all that sort of thing. You can't just wish things um, and have a you know, deus ex machina kind of uh, ending where someone just kind of conjures up some item or spell out of nothing that solves all the problems you've been trying for. Um, so the internal consistency is important for me because I think that makes it more satisfying for readers because they can understand it. And sometimes if, if I've done the work well enough, they can figure out things that I didn't necessarily explicitly say just because they see how it's working according to those hidden rules. And that I think I, I prefer to um, defer on the side of the reader's intelligence in that sort of thing. So I don't try to overly explain everything, but I want to make it clear enough that they can get what's going on. Uh, you mentioned you've been a gamer all your life, and that does involve, especially if you're a dungeon master, if you're a game master, you're involved a, a little bit of world building yourself and storytelling and character yeah. creation and such. What got you into writing? Because if I follow the timeline here, you were gaming before you were writing. So how'd you get started in yeah. that? Um, yeah, I've been a, a gamer and a reader and um, for since I was a child. Um, I officially set out on the writing path as pursuing like being an author in college. I was reading a book one day in college and you know, a fantasy novel by you know, some really well-known author. And I read, I finished a chapter and I sat back and just had this very crystal clear moment of, I could write that. I could have written that. I could have written better than that. And then this voice in the back of my head, which is authors always have voices in their heads, said, prove it. And I was like, okay. Um, and I set out to, then that's where I set out to start writing my own stories. And it's thankfully, you know, uh, built from there to something that I actually have as a career now. And it was just something I decided, this is what I love. I love storytelling. Um, I believe in the power of stories and then the written word. Um, and I want this to be what I am doing the rest of my life if possible. So, and I've been fortunate enough for that to become a reality. And you have, uh, like you said before, you've been in uh, different aspects of publishing. You've, you've self-published, you've written work for hire, and, and you've had other publishers that have, that have published your work. Uh, is, is, I know there's pros and cons to all of the different types of how to publish your book. Uh, self-publishing probably is the easiest thing as far as like create space and go to Amazon to do your ebook right. and that sort of thing. Do you find uh, that you have a preference for how you get a book out? Professionally. <laughs> that's, that's actually, I mean, that's honestly the, the best way because it, it sometimes in some ways it doesn't matter whether it's out through into your self-publishing or a traditional publisher. There are pros and cons to both. Both are very legitimate career paths. Um, I, I'm a hybrid author because I've done a mingle of them all, but whatever the result, I want that book to look professional. I want it to be something that you can pick up on the bookshelf and it looks just as good or better than any of the others. The cover art is always important. The formatting and layout has to be important. The editing has to be done. I hire editors you know, to edit my stuff, even though I am a freelance editor as well. I don't edit my own work because right. I know I have to have a professional handle it. Um, so when even, you know, traditional publishers will provide more of that professional stuff for you. If you're going to go indie or self-publishing or whatever, you have to bring that professional level of quality yourself. 
um, and enforce that. And so that's always the standard. And when, and when I work with publishers of, of games, I always try to help them uh, and they sometimes need some help on how does this get formatted and laid out? Who do I go to for art and who do I go to for editing? And I work with them to make sure it's up to that standard that I can look at that book and be proud of it. That, you know, yeah, it's a tie-in and I was hired to do this, but I still am very glad that my name is on that cover. Do you find that there is a consistency, a continuity, as it were, in your cover art designs? I look at stuff from, say, Bayon, for example, and yeah. I can look at something that's either John Ringo or David Weber or, or anybody that gets published by Bayon, and I can generally tell, oh, this is a Bayon book by the way the cover is laid out. Do you have yeah. a do you have a, a a a particular mode that your covers need to look like this particular um, style or does it you know it matter it it depends on the book or the publisher or how it it's getting on, out? Yeah, it depends on the book. Um, specifically though, with the cleaners, that's actually more relevant because I have gone to the same artist to do each of the cleaners books. Um, and you saw me looking up here because I actually so Jeff Herndon is my go-to artist uh, for those. He'll hopefully so, you know, uh, do the last two covers as well. He's done all of them um, since the beginning. So this is his work and it's a, it's a literal painting. And I actually have all four paintings of each of the covers, the originals in my office here. And I'll have the two others um, eventually as well. Uh, but the, the, if you, the book, the covers for each of these has a very specific style that if you hold them up together, you can tell immediately they're the same series. They're the same style that, you know, they're different colors. They're slightly different layout, a little bit, the, the font's a little different, but visually when you line them all up, it's very easy to, to pick out that this is a series and they belong together. And because it's a fantasy, but also a humorous fantasy, I wanted the humor element to come through in each of those. I wanted it to be visually unique enough so that you're going, wait a minute, is that a, a janitor throwing smack down with a, a slime goblin kind of thing? What's going on there? Right. So that people's, and, and oftentimes when I've done conventions and events in the past, the covers are what ca pe uh, catch people's attention and they come over and go, well, what is this? And that's the whole point really. <laughs> How has uh, how has the reception been to that series of books? What what kind of response have you had from the general public? Uh, I've had very positive response. Um, I've had it's a it's a series that's very accessible. I've had kids as young as eight read it, and then of course on up from there, um, people people love it. They enjoy the laughter it brings. They enjoy uh, the characters uh, because the characters are very unique. Um, there is this sense of, I've had people saying, oh, uh, Danny, the main character is a germaphobe. And I've had people come to me and going, oh, I'm Danny. And, you know, I can't ever touch things and look at things because they're just so disgusting. And so there's that relation to it. Um, people enjoy the portrayal of the sanitation workers um, because it's a, I try to be more realistic. Um, diverse characters, diverse in age, in race, in, uh, in sex and, and whatnot. So it show, it's more realistically portraying the world that we're in. It's not just this whitewashed version of the world where, you know, uh, the white male hero is off saving the day again. Right. 
Um, but it's been extremely positive. I have people contacting me on a pretty regular basis asking when the next one's coming out. And I have my hardcore fans who they are first in line to, to get their copy. And then they come see me at convention year after year to get their new copy signed. So that's a sign that I must be doing something that they enjoy. Now, you mentioned conventions. Uh, since mm-hmm. March 15th, we have been reporting on the various different school closings that uh, that we've that have come across our list. I think we're something close to 1,400 different events, I think, that have changed their schedule somehow. Either they've gone virtual, yeah. they've canceled. Are you finding... Uh, an, I, I know the loss of that interaction has hurt a number of authors, not just uh, financially, but socially, emotionally, mentally. There's a toll that's that's been taken. Uh, but do you uh, do you have those opportunities to participate in virtual events? Are you finding value in those? Yeah, I, I've been doing conventions. I basically started on the professional convention track back in 2014 when my first books came out. I did like. 25 conventions that year and then most of the years i do like somewhere between six and ten so this last year of them being canceled has been hard i mean there's certainly a level of stress that goes along with them but i do love that interaction i love running a booth selling books to people pitching them signing them doing panels i really i do thrive in that and it's been hard to not do that and potentially not even do that much next year but the virtual cons I've been starting to get into more often. Um, I did a few panels, for instance, for Gen Con, um, the big gaming convention, which also has a really big writer symposium. Um, I will be doing another one in November for Oricon, uh, which is one based out of uh, Portland okay. uh, that I used to go to in person. Yeah. So, and then I'll probably be trying to pick up some more of those uh, over the course of the next few months. I've been talking to a number of people about uh, what conventions may look like going forward. And as we mm-hmm. as we get past all of this and we get somewhat back to normal at some point in the future, uh, <laughs> this this idea of the virtual element of these things seems to really kind of be a thing now. Mm-hmm. Is uh, in in all of your uh, plans for, you know, I, I'm sure you're probably looking ahead and saying, okay, well, what does it look like? What does my convention ticket look like going yeah. forward? Do you think that conventions need to have a virtual track uh, moving forward from now on? Because there are going to be people that are going to sit there and say, okay, this pandemic thing is over, it's under control, but I still don't want to be in a crowd of 40,000 people. Yeah. I, I think live streaming, as well as making content on demand post conventions, um, whether it's behind a paywall or a subscription, or it's a free, you know, a certain level of content is free and that sort of thing. I think it's a business model that conventions should totally embrace and many have. Um, a lot of that content has already been packaged and sold virtually in the past. So, you know, make it more, you know, and, and conventions have always been about, there's that point like with Gen Con where there's just too many people. The rooms are sold, you know, the hotel rooms are sold out for 20 miles around the hotel uh, six months before the convention even happens. There are so many people who can't attend, who want to attend, want that experience. And if they could pay to, you know, have a virtual ticket and be able to watch the live streaming and that sort of thing, or to, you know, follow the panels, you know, uh, afterwards, I think that's a huge opportunity for conventions themselves and for people who 
are able to do that. There are a lot of authors that I know who they're uncomfortable going to conventions. They don't like speaking in front of people that much. Mm -hmm. I do, but they don't. They don't like being in crowds. But if they were still able to participate, uh, then great. That's a, that's excellent for them if they're able to do so virtually. Well, and you have also you have authors who are not quite used to the idea of doing the virtual thing. Uh, you know, you, you talk sure. about people who are not comfortable being in front of crowds. Now you have to add that other component of not being comfortable in front of a TV camera and doing right. that. And that kind of dovetails into another aspect of writing, especially if you're an independent author, you're not set up at a publisher all the time, is marketing your stuff, marketing your books. Yeah. Because uh, for a number of years now, the the responsibility of publicity has been more on the author rather than the publisher. And I think that's, that's uh, yeah. more so if you've got an independent author, if you're self-publishing, you don't have that support structure. But now you have this added layer of doing all of this web stuff, doing all of this online, whether it's Zoom meetings and interviews like this one, or you're pre-packaging video and putting on a YouTube channel or Vimeo or someplace mm -hmm. like that. Now you have this learning curve where people have have this this next other thing that they've got to figure out. Are there are there research? Have you come across resources, or do you know? Because you know you've been in part of of CIFWA and and the tie-in writers. Mm -hmm. Had there been discussions about providing resources to authors about? Here's how you have an online presence, an online video presence. Everybody's got a social media account, mm -hmm. and that's a whole nother ball of string as far as how you behave in your social media stuff. But now you're looking at this yeah. video, and, and you're, you're essentially marketing yourself using video. What's the best way to do that? Yeah, uh, it is a whole nother level. Um, there are resources out there, and, and you mentioned uh, two of the big ones, the, the organizations that already exist, like CIFWA, um, they have resources, they have people who have gone on and written articles and blogs, and they do conferences and, and workshops on this sort of thing. Um, a lot of local writers groups, I'm part of like the Pikes Peak Writers uh, Organization, and they do things on um, you know, social presence and marketing yourself. Uh, the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers is another one uh, in Denver. Um, but there are, you know, any, you just Google search a little bit. I'm a big on just researching and finding those resources. There is a lot. Um, and if you just, if you know other authors and you know people who are doing this, go to them for questions. You know, people on Patreon, for instance. I, I'm not on Patreon myself, but I see a lot of people who are. And I've done the research of like emailing people and saying, hey, I see you're doing a really successful Patreon campaign that involves a lot of live YouTubing and that sort of thing. How'd you set that up? Um, don't be afraid to go and ask your peers what they're doing and what works for them and why. Um, because I don't see authors as in competition with one another. Right. You know, just because somebody bought that person's book doesn't mean they won't buy mine. If we support each other and give each other advice and show what's working and what's not, then we help each other. Um, but yeah, there's, there is a fair bit of that available out there, um, for those who really want to go looking, there's plenty of books written on the topic. Mm -hmm. Um, I, uh, 
Yeah, so and and I started actually delving into the video side of things myself briefly a few years back when I was doing conventions. I started taking a GoPro around and like doing shots and interviews of myself and other authors in the booth. And I have a little YouTube channel that that I haven't posted on for years now. But I actually, you know, I had a friend um, who uh, she was a videographer and a photographer who helped train me a little bit and said, "Here's how you have to think about your." you know, video presence uh, compared to just talking in front of people. It's different. You have to think about things like sound and lighting and, you know, the framing and all that kind of stuff. So depending, again, on how professionally you want it to look. Um, so that's that's something I've had in mind for a while now. So are you the planning other, are, the, are you planning to revive your YouTube channel at any point? I see it's been, <laughs> what, five years since you've posted anything. It, it doesn't yeah. seem like that's the thing you're doing yet. Maybe, but uh, that is the thing is like, you have to determine what your priorities are. Right. Each area that you try to market yourself in is going to take up so much of your time and so much of your energy. Um, some people devote tons into their email newsletters and that have, they have a hundred thousand followers and that's a huge return on investment for them. Um, I'm a marketer, actually. I do freelance marketing and copywriting. So I think in that, and I think in those terms, as far as my career goes, um, but if, if you're really great at doing video, that might be an area to build up. If you really if you have a blog presence like John Scalzi, that's his thing. It's been his thing for over a decade that he's not going to change that just because video is now a bigger thing. Right. Um, you know, conventions, I enjoy them, but you also have to adapt. Um, I'm used to being online and interacting with people virtually because I've been a freelance writer as a you know, full time for over almost 15 years now. Um, so I'm used to that sort of interaction with people. And I've also taught myself how to do that better. I've taken courses and, and again, just practice a lot. I've done a fair bit of online interviews. And for me, building a popular big YouTube channel from scratch would probably take a bit more effort than say getting on an, an interview with an established channel that has a, you know, an audience that's already there. Sure. Well, and and you talk about the the Patreon and the and the uh, the the ecosystem there, and the discussions that you've had mm -hmm. with various different people in all of your networks, and and advising and and uh, consulting back and forth. Uh, what about the crowdfunding model? Uh, we see a yeah. lot of that back and forth and discussion and learning from each other's mistakes in the comic side, in the indie comic side of things, mm -hmm. and they're using. Indiegogo, Kickstarter, they're talking to each yeah. other saying, this works for me, this didn't work, try this, don't do this. Is that a viable option for prose fiction publishing? I mean, uh, we talked to Bob Greenberger here last week about Thrilling Adventure Yarns. They're, they're crowdfunding a short story anthology, their second one, over at Crazy 8. Is that a viable mm -hmm. option there, do you think? Is that, how, how much do you think that might take off? Absolutely. Um, I think crowdfunding of things like anthologies, especially, uh, is a big one. Games, the Nexus board game um, that my novel is based on. The RPG is out there. They're trying to crowdfund the board game, which I think they're going to um, scale back on that because it wasn't getting the traction that they wanted. But um, hopefully that will take off because uh, it certainly deserves the attention. I think crowdfunding is absolutely viable as far as being a source of income for authors and creatives. Um, I am of the belief that you should have as many varied sources of income as possible, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm a hybrid author. So I have indie books, I have freelance writing, 
Um, I have my tie-in novels. I have my traditional books. Um, I may branch out into, you know, more of a crowdfunding thing eventually. I also want to eventually branch out into uh, writing a webcomic and doing graphic novels because I'm also a digital artist um, and, and things of that nature. So I'm always looking for ways to invest in multiple areas. And then if one of those areas really takes off eventually, then, you know, of course I would put more uh, fuel into that fire to keep it going. Um, but I think that crowdfunding is absolutely great. It requires a, a business skill set. You can't just go in asking for money to do your thing. You and everybody I know who goes in unprepared and hasn't done their research and doesn't come in with a plan tends to fail or they squander the resources that they, that they get. And then you get a bunch of angry, uh, you know, uh, funders and, right. and no deliverables. Um, one resource that I would actually recommend um, is the, and this is a seminar that has been put on hold, of course, but when it comes back into play is the Superstars Writing Seminar. Um, it's one I've attended uh, a handful of times over the years, and it's different from other writing conferences because it's a business conference. It's actually primarily focused on the business of being an author and a creative, learning how to run, do your accounting, read contracts, uh, do crowdfunding, because there are a lot of people who will, who will teach on the crowdfunding uh, model. Um, and it's done and it's run by a bunch of best-selling authors who have made a career out of it. Now, Kevin, uh, Kevin, that's the one that Kevin J. Anderson is part of, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. All right. Cause I've seen him post on that a few times. I wasn't sure exactly how many different topics that they cover on that because you know, like you said, there, there are ways, yeah. you know, there are some seminars that focus on one particular aspect of the writing business. Uh, and I was talking mm -hmm. to Kat Rambo about this the other day, this, this idea that, uh, the business side, the marketing side, doesn't always get the attention that it perhaps needs to get, especially with authors who are just starting out or they're brand, you know, they've only got a few short stories and maybe they're working on their first novel. But it's it's a load. It, it is uh, it is a, 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 yeah. <laughs> a big responsibility to get your own work out there. You don't have you know, 6,000 publicity, uh, you know, publicity people from the publisher that are doing this stuff anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, and Kat's very savvy about that. She and I have worked together quite a few years. Um, and yeah, she, she runs, I think you have to have a business mindset. Now, of course, that depends on what is your end goal? Do you want just the ability to write? You don't have to market yourself, but you're probably not going to end up on the bestsellers list and you're not going to end up having a viable career or stream of income unless you're putting some effort into that, even, you know, on a minimal basis. Yeah. Um, you have to think of it like uh, what is your best interest for long-term viability as a career? It has to have some elements of it that are a job. Um, I have to be my own manager. And sometimes that sucks because I would love for, you know, to get a you know movie deal that lets me sit around and do nothing but write and draw all day long, but I still have to do certain types of you know work that pays the bills. Yeah, well, and and the other thing too is you mentioned you mentioned comic books and and graphic novels and such. Would we possibly see a cleaner's graphic novel at some point? Maybe or is that something in maybe in the works? I would love to. I think it's something that would very easily translate into a graphic novel format. It would also translate very well into a gaming format. And I've talked uh, occasionally with different publishers about turning the cleaners into an RPG setting. So it'd be interesting to see how that turns out. Um, but yeah, I ha and if you look on my, um, I have a DeviantArt 
uh, profile, um, I think it's just DeviantArt, JR Vote, um, where I have some, you'll see some cleaners art that I've done based on some of my characters and scenes there. So I, I enjoy uh, create, if, if people aren't gonna do fan art for me, I'll do my own fan art. <laughs> Yeah, there's been some chatter back and forth in the con. We mentioned talking about the comic stuff. There's been some back and forth, some criticism of certain aspects of the the traditional publishing side of comics, Marvel, DC, Image, and that mm -hmm. set. Where a lot of people are on the outside looking in, and they're saying, you know, don't write a comic book as your Netflix audition. Write a comic book as a comic book. Tell that story. Mm. Is in your in your experience, just from what you've read and seen from other people in discussions, do we put too much emphasis on the movie deal, the Netflix deal, or, or is there too much of of chasing the adaptation as opposed to just tell a good story that entertains? I think there can be. I mean, it's it's kind of like those are the, you know, the golden rings that you're shooting for in this career, you know, to be the next Stephen King, the next J.K. Rowling, although I know there's a lot of controversy about her right now yeah. on, on the Twitter feeds, um, you know, to be the next blockbuster hit, the next, you know, Twilight, Fifty Shades of Grey, Harry Potter, whatever, you know, big name is out there making bank right now, everybody wants that experience. Am I going to deny that getting, you know, a six-figure movie deal and whatnot isn't appealing? Sure. If someone wants to offer me that, I'm probably not going to turn that down. Um, but at the same time, I'm not making that my definition of daily success. And I think that's what a lot of people, and I've talked about this at, at panels and whatnot, is like, you have to define what success means for you as an author. Does success mean having published a book? then yes, you've succeeded. Does success mean winning an award? Well, then technically you haven't succeeded as an author until you've won that award, which is something that's really not in your control. Um, you know, does success mean making six figures a year just on fiction writing? Right. That takes a lot longer to build up to than it's going to happen. And most people who get there are in a bit of an exceptional percentage of the population. I am glad to be at a place where I can be doing writing and art pretty much every day and making a living on it, paying my pills, paying my mortgage, paying, you know, my, I have a family of, we have a family of six and we, I'm, I'm working, you know, we have a single income, but I can do that with my creative and my marketing, copywriting, and all that kind of stuff. So it's, that's very satisfying and feels very successful right now in that sense. Um, so yeah, there can't be too much emphasis on those big lofty accomplishments, but yeah, that it really comes down to what you want to out of it. Sure. Well, speaking and speaking of J.K. Rowling and Twitter, um, is there in your experience? And you've probably I don't I don't know. It doesn't seem like you you've maybe been uh, the subject of this as of yet. Uh, is do we put too much emphasis on social media? Is social media useful at this point? I mean, we we there is so much uh, blowback on what's going on over at Twitter. We see what's going on with Chris Pratt now and J.K. Rowling and yeah. you know all these things. Is it just are are we past the point where that stuff is useful? Is there still some some good that can come out of using social media, especially on a marketing side of things? Yeah, yeah I mean, social media is a tool. 
that it can be used for good or bad. I think right now we live in such a politicized, divided environment and culture that everyone wants to find some way or some reason to judge other people. Um, and it's almost like if you don't like something, then you must hate it. Well, that's not true. I just might not like it as much as you do. Um, but we, yeah, we are in this very highly judgmental, highly criticizing environment um, where people have access to creatives like they never had before. And that's part of the risk of being a creative is you put yourself out there in a very vulnerable state. You're expressing yourself right. um, in a lot of different ways. I've scaled back a fair bit on my social activity. Like I'm not on, fa I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Instagram is actually one of the more active these days, um, but they're all active, but I'm not really like scanning them every hour. Like some people do. I'm not interacting as much on there unless I'm interacting directly with someone. Um, you know, and I usually try to do it in an encouraging manner or whatnot. You know, I'll, I'll dive into some of the politics occasionally, but, um, you know, I prefer not to have panic attacks most days. Um, so, you know, it, it, you have to be able to set healthy boundaries on that kind of stuff in your life. Otherwise it can so consume you. And if you're spending more time dealing with emotional fallout of seeing someone's post on Facebook, than you are getting a chapter written, then priorities right you know? well and the other thing too and, and and i've seen you know comments to this effect on a, from a number of different angles not just one particular group ideologically or you know left right whatever it's this idea of representing a brand uh whether you right. know even if you're an, an independent contractor as it were you know somebody like a chuck wendig or a gail simone or somebody who is associated with they yeah they have their brand but they're also associated with things like star wars and dc comics and whatnot and right. it would seem like you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot by popping off on one topic or another in one way or another and run the risk of alienating you know, 40 to 60% of your potential audience. And, and right. it would seem to me, yeah, it's your own personal account, but some degree, like you say, some degree of restraint probably is not a bad idea. <laughs> no, I think for most people, don't be a jerk is a good rule. Yeah. You know, be respectful, be professional. If you want it to be a profession, treat it like professional and always assume that people are going to judge you on that level. Um, if you, if you decide that personally, you don't care what the consequences are, that you're willing to take the fallout of that kind of polarizing statement, whatever it is, then that has to be an intentional decision on you. And you can't, if you say something, you can't be like, oh, why are you attacking me? You know, why are you holding me to what I said? Right. And, you know, whatnot. There's going to be consequences and you have to be aware of that. Um, so yeah, you do have to have some thought going into it. Now there's the whole argument of like, can you separate an artist from their art? Can you enjoy a book that was written by somebody who's racist or sexist or that sort of thing? Um, and that's, I think that comes down to the individual reader who has to decide that for themselves or the, you know, whoever's consuming that artwork. Um, but yeah, I mean, knowing, knowing the source of it is also important. So is it, is it wrong for a group of people to look at a book that maybe not necessarily has even been published yet and decide <laughs> you're not the right person to write this book because you're not fill in the blank. Uh, are, yeah. Is that, is that a little bit too extreme? Do you think? It really depends on what their issue is. Um, for instance, um, I mean, 
let me see. I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, like Chuck Wendig is one big example. You know, he had that he had like a thousand one star reviews before his book, his Star Wars novel, even came out because people were protesting his inclusion of a gay character and gay, I believe gay romance in the novel. Um, that sort of attack on someone just because of you know that sort of lifestyle or ideology. I don't believe that's okay at all. Um, I do think that there has to be maybe more like uh, racial representation might have to be a more uh, serious issue to take into account. I'm not going to, um, yeah, I have, for instance, like, you know, the black and white racism is a big thing nowadays. I mean, it's been a thing for years. Yeah. We're just now kind of reaching a boiling point in the country because of everything. I'm not going, and I have in my character, in my uh, books, I have a lot of racially diverse characters. I don't make race an issue that they argue and fight over. I just make, I just kind of bring out the point that sanitation workers tend to be minority demographics. There are, you know, Hispanics and, and African-Americans and uh, Asian people who all work in that and, and they are a very diverse demographic. So my way of recognizing that is most of my characters are diverse in those books. Now, someone could argue, well, how can you write characters who aren't a white male character because that's outside of the scope of my experience as a person? I, I don't necessarily go into it saying, I'm gonna go write a black character. I'm gonna go write a female character. I'm gonna go write a Asian character and bring their culture into it and try and appropriate that. It's more like, I'm just gonna write an interesting character who happens to be of this race or happens to be of this gender. Right. And, and but, that's my approach to it. Um, I'm but, not in there preaching a particular agenda. Yeah, but then you also have you you look at books like uh, uh, Blood Air from Emily Wenzel, or you get the book from Cusco Jackson. You know these people who are uh, writing these stories, and people come at them and say, "Do you really want to do that? Do you really want to publish that book? Because you're really not the right person to write that book." I mean, Cusco Jackson yeah. was in the group that canceled Emily Zhao's book. And then he gets criticized yeah. for his own and he has to pull his book. And you have and and this seems to be happening in the YA space a lot where, yeah. you know, you can't write that book because you're not black as, as an example or things. D is that right. Is that even appropriate for somebody to come in and criticize? I mean, because you don't know that author's background. You don't know what kind of research that yeah. they've done and all of that. So you're making assumptions and you're taking actions based on, based on those assumptions. Have you run into that at all in, in discussing projects with publishers or, or, or game developers or anything like that? Has that become a concern? It's become a concern. I have not run into it as much personally. Like I, a lot of my characters are female characters, um, and I haven't had anyone complain that, oh, you don't represent women well. well. I'm not really trying to represent a woman as some sort of different alien creature. I'm just, she's a person. Um, at the, my middle grade novels are actually, um, both protagonists and those are teenage young black girls, black or preteens and teenagers. Now, someone could say, well, how do you have any sort of experience writing right. from that perspective? You've never, you weren't a young black girl. Noted. Um, I have three daughters who are, and I have experience with them, um, that I can pull on. And I actually, you know, I've read to them those stories and, um, you know, try to relate those to them and, and come at it from an authentic perspective. Part of my strategy also is that I remove my stories. Most of my stories um, are a bit removed enough from our reality that 
some of those mod you know those current hot topics aren't really as relevant necessarily um you know being on a ship on an alien planet you're not necessarily going to be dealing with some of the same social cultural strife uh you'll, you'll be dealing with a whole different type and your skin color is not going to really matter right. in that colonize you know colony mm -hmm. that might be my way of getting around it for the time being but i've never been directly confronted on that and if someone ever does have an issue with it then i'm open to that to you know to see like what is your objection and is it valid so but yeah it, it can be people can be very quick to judge uh, without knowing any context tobias Bakel, um who has written a, a, some of my favorite stuff he does um caribbean based sci-fi and he comes from a family where he is uh a, a you know black descendant but he doesn't look it he looks white yeah and and people have accused him of writing these you know black characters and these caribbean characters saying he's culturally appropriating but that's how he grew up that was his family um, and you can't judge it just based on his author photo. Yeah. Well, hopefully you don't run into that yourself. Uh, and and I understand you're in discussions now. You're talking with Diverse about a new project in yeah. in their gaming world. What's what's next for you? Well, so yeah, I mean the Blood Guts and Glory one that's been out for a bit. I hope folks uh, folks have been enjoying that a lot. Um, that one's a bit of a I like to say it's uh, the Big Lebowski crossed with Mad Max crossed with Spaceballs would be the best way to put it. Um, and that would be pretty much more of where that came from. Uh, once a, a sequel or not, not necessarily even a sequel, but another one set in that universe um, is I'd very much uh, Scott Rumps um, is who I work with there with the, the Deepers Publishing. He's really incredible, um, very passionate about his game and his universe. Um, and I've enjoyed working with them. So I, I absolutely hope for the chance to do another one uh, in the Nexus setting. So that will be, uh, we'll see as soon as that happens, I'll let you know. <laughs> and you're working on another cleaner story. Any, any short stories in the work, any anthologies that are going to be including uh, anything from you? Not immediately. Um, I had two anthologies come out this year, Parallel, uh, let's see here, I actually have one of them, uh, Parallel Worlds, uh, which has... Uh, a lot of different stories in it. That was an Amazon bestseller. Uh, keeps coming back onto the Amazon bestseller number one spot. Uh, that has one of mine. And then um, uh, one by an editor, Jennifer Brozek. Um, a, the, oh gosh, I want to say it's the uh, the Teenage Guide to Fighting Elder Gods. Um, it's a Lovecraftian um, anthology that I'm in that actually just got shortlisted for the British Fantasy Awards. Oh, that sounds um, like fun. So that yeah, that was really fun. Um, I love that anthology a lot. So I'm absolutely hoping to continue to contribute to projects like those as the opportunities come up. All right. Well, we do uh, wish you all the best with that. The website, jrvote.com. He is also on Twitter, jrvote. And uh, he is uh, here for about two more minutes. So, Josh, thank you very much for uh, for spending time with us and taking uh taking an hour to talk about what you've been doing and we do appreciate it absolutely jason all right and all of you uh in the chat uh sci-fi snob robert uh kojika i uh, hope i'm hopefully i'm i'm pronouncing that right thanks very much for being there and uh, participating if you have a comment or a suggestion for a guest uh, you can send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com or you can leave a comment 
and uh, feel free to share. And of course, on your way out, uh, make sure you are subscribed to the channel. We have a brand new uh, H2O podcast tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. And then tomorrow night, the latest Star Wars news with Salacious Crumbs, which we will be discussing uh, in all of the different rumors and speculation on Friday night on the Ranker Pit. And, of course, uh, The Mandalorian drops their first episode of Season 2 on Friday. We'll be talking about that. So we do hope you join us for all of that. In the meantime, uh, make sure you're still subscribed and have your notifications turned on. We will continue with our school closings list as we get new information on convention schedules and more live from the bunker all this week through Thursday right here on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Thanks very much for being here, everyone. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.